You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. What's up, Resonate? Good to see you guys. We are in this uh, third part of this series talking about the Bible. And it's been kind of a strange thing as we begin to talk from the Bible about the Bible. And we've never done this before in the history of our church. Um, But we really feel like this is one of those key things for us to be able to understand and for us to be able to dig into and for us to be able to make sure that we are on the same page. And so in this, here's our hope that the Bible wouldn't be a distant book. It wouldn't be one of those things that it's kind of Maybe you have one somewhere, but it's not something you actually engage and integrate into your life, but it would be something that you actually have a consistent, um, really kind of a relationship with in terms of being able to get into this, this sacred text and to be able to understand what it means for you and understand uh, what it means for your life. Um, one of the things that um, we see over the course of um, when, when people do studies of, of people that go to church and Christians is one of the most significant transformative things really relates back to how often people get into the word, uh, how often people interact with the Bible. And so more than anything else, more than, uh, more than being a part of a group or going to Sundays, the thing that happens that really changes people's life the most is the frequency by which they interact with the text. And so we want to get into this and we want to make sure that, um, that, that we understand what this means. And so today as we, uh, as we get into this, as we begin to pursue this, this topic, um, this may feel a little bit like a seminar and, and not like a sermon, um, because I really want to unpack really how we can live into a, a place of trustworthiness and how is it that when we begin to make decisions, um, we could submit to the Bible and we could submit our lives to these and we can have confidence that what we're submitting our lives to is actually the truth um, that, that will take us and allow our lives to flourish. Um, and so to do that, I really want to unpack how we begin to get into the Bible. So, um, so it might feel a little bit like, uh, like a seminar. It might not feel like a sermon. Um, and, and if that's a bummer to you, we have like 400 on the app. So you can go and you can choose one and, uh, and, and your day will end really great. So um, in this, I want to uh, talk about really um, how our culture sees things and how our culture sees moments and, and how they begin to even play out. In fact, we have phrases and, and we might not even understand where these phrases come from, but they go back to moments in history and, and they, in some ways, begin to define that moment in history. You might have heard this one, to drink the Kool-Aid. Well, this one has a darker um, context to it. Um, this one it relates back to uh, a mass suicide um, that happened in 1978. And this is what I really want to focus around. This, this idea of drink the Kool-Aid is this idea that someone would be overly gullible or would be too trusting and to be someone who would fall for something and then have their lives radically changed by that thing. Ultimately, in this context, it's death. This guy named Jim Jones, and you may have heard of Jim Jones. He was the founder of the People's Temple. It was a church in, um, in California that began to grow in prominence. And one of the things in the, in the civil rights era that it did was was it talked about uh, racial equality and it talked about um, the, the um, ultimately bringing things together, bringing races together and, and being able to have this, this kind of uh, redemptive reality around that. And that was the good thing. But the guy named Jim Jones was its leader and he began to use this, use the Bible 
as a, a context to, to not only do really incredible things in terms of being able to press forward um, civil rights and, and, and ultimately racial reconciliation, but he began to use this um, not just to do those good things, but to ultimately do things that led to the, the creation of a place called Jonestown. And Jonestown was um, where about a thousand people went down and ultimately to escape what was happening in terms of persecution in the United States, they go into Guyana. And in Guyana, they build this utopian society. And whenever the, it began to have scrutiny as to what was happening there and begin to see kind of the excesses and the manipulation and the authoritarian regime that um, Jim Jones was creating, uh, ultimately what he led all of his followers in was what he called revolutionary suicide. And they drank cyanide-laced Kool-Aid and 918 people died in that single day in, or, in, in the context of this. Now the key to this, and what is so just sickening about this is, is how someone could manipulate this group of people in order to kill themselves, in order to ultimately bring to death the ultimate sacrifice. But even more sickening, and, and, and where we begin to focus our attention, is that he uses the Bible to do that. He uses this, this text to be able to take and begin to not just say this is the authority for our lives, but to ultimately create himself as the authoritarian as he begins to interpret this and as he begins to teach people the scriptures. Now in this, I really believe that we have to ask ourselves as we begin to talk about the Bible and as Resonate begins to say this is um, from its origin, it begins to be a, a book that has authority that we begin to submit our lives to. But we have to ask the question, can it be twisted? And how can something that could be so good have something or, or be twisted into something that could create so much pain? And how could someone take the Bible and ultimately make it into something that would end people's lives, that would create manipulation and ultimately death? And how do we know if someone could take the Bible and do that, that we aren't ultimately getting into a place where the Bible is being used to manipulate us and to call us to a place that doesn't lead to our, our thriving and our flourishing, but leads to our suffering? And ultimately leads to something that's, that is, uh, isn't what um, God has desired us to do and to be. And so we need to ask this of the Bible. We need to ask, what does this mean? How does this work? And, and what does it look like? And, and maybe you're with someone who's asked that question. Ask if the Bible is trustworthy. And ask, can we take and can we ultimately... Um, trust whether the Bible is something that we can submit our lives to. And this is key because, because as you hear this and as we begin to talk about this, the question is, are you going to ultimately allow the Bible to lead your life? Is it going to imprint your life? Or are you going to pick and choose what you believe? And ultimately, are you going to be the God of, of your life and ultimately begin to say, I'll follow some of the things, but not all of the things. I'll be the Lord. I'll be the person. I'll submit to my own um, authority. Or is the Bible going to be an authority? And that's the rub. And the difficulty and the complexity of this situation is that the Bible has been used ultimately in many ways to, to hurt people. And I know for me um, personally, this is, this is a struggle that I, I walked through personally. As I ended college and got into seminary, one of the things that I had to walk through was really the doubts that I had. 
And the doubts that I had mainly revolved around, is the Bible reliable? Is the Bible something that when I begin to see this in there, that I can trust that my decisions should should be submitted to the Bible? Is this something that ultimately is man-made or God-made? Is this something that is, is something that I can trust? And as I got into seminary and I began to study the Bible, um, it wasn't like those things went away until I began to um, really ask the question, how do we know that when we read the Bible, we're actually getting to the truth? And how is it not just a guy with incredible oratory gifts and persuasive words? And if he can come up there and if he can tell great stories and if he can make people laugh and he can make people cry, how is it that he can't take and use the Bible to manipulate people in really negative ways? And it's in that context that I began to really study and begin to ask. And, um, and one of the moments that really began to take and radically shift my faith and allow me to stand in front of people and teach the word was the discovery of really how to interpret the Bible or the study of hermeneutics. And I know that that word might not be a word that you've ever heard before, but the word hermeneutics is really the study of interpretation or the study of how things begin to um, have clarity and consistency and how everyone is submitted to the same set of rules that ultimately allows us to look at a text and to be able to say, this is what it means. And in this, the very first day of, um, uh, of class, my professor said, This is what our goal is to do, is to take 1 Timothy 2.15. It says this, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly handles the word of truth. And this is what, uh, this is what I want us to aim at as we begin to get into this today. That, that ultimately, here's what Paul, Paul is writing this to Timothy. Timothy is kind of a, uh, Paul is a mentor to Timothy. And Timothy is in Ephesus and he's beginning to say, hey, this is what it looks like. Here's how, you, here's how you're a good leader. That you begin to understand, it says, do your very best. This is imperative. Like there's not many things that we're to say, hey, you need to do your best. As as we begin to understand grace and the idea of Christianity, there's this idea of Jesus has done it and we begin to operate out of grace. But here's this one place where you begin to see Paul saying, hey, this is where you need to focus your efforts in order to understand as yourself as one approved, a worker that does not need to be ashamed. So you have to embrace grace, right? But then you ultimately need to be someone who correctly handles the word of truth, who correctly handles the word of truth. And in this, as we look at this, this idea of correctly handling the word of truth, this is what allows us to know why the Bible can be trustworthy, how we can submit to the Bible and where we can begin to say, okay, this is how I can make decisions in my life with confidence. And so as we look at this, here's, he, he says this, and, um, and he begins to help people to understand this is what it looks like. And then in 1 Thessalonians uh, 2, uh, chapter, chapter 2, verse 13, he says this, and he's talking about the same idea. He says, therefore, he's talking to this group of people, we never stop thanking God that when you received this, his message from us, you didn't think our words as mere human ideas, you accepted what we said as the very word of God, which of course it is. And this word continues to work in you who believe. And at the very beginning, what we have is, is uh, these, these men who wrote the Bible. And in this, 
what happens is he's beginning to help them to understand uh, the gravity of this and help them to be able to understand that this has weight to it. And this is beyond just our words. And this is just beyond the things that we're convincing you of. This is the very words of God. And so in this, what I want to do is help us to be able to understand really how to read the Bible and how that you can begin to read the Bible and understand how to interpret the Bible and understand how we have um, places where we get it right and places where we get it wrong. Because ultimately I want to keep us from train wrecks. And I also want to keep you from cults. <laughs> I want to keep you from drinking the Kool-Aid. And for you to be able to do this, um, I, you need to have some tools that help you to understand. And if you don't do this, then what's happened is you're going to either ignore the Bible and you're going to reject the Bible or you're going to follow something that's not a real that's not the real truth of the Bible and you're going to get caught up and you're going to hear someone say something and it's going to have a compelling story and it's going to have great logic, but it's all wrong because they took and they manipulated the interpretation of the Bible. And so I want to give you some tools and some ways to see this. And I can't give you a whole semester worth of master's level hermeneutics class, but I can give you some principles. And so hopefully you have something to write down and something um, to be able to capture some of this because uh, you don't want to do stupid stuff just because you get into the text and, um, and you make a dumb decision. So I'm going to keep you from making dumb decisions. And so here's the first thing I want to give you. Um, there's, there's four ways that we typically get into the word. When we begin to get into the Bible and we begin to, to read the Bible, there's four things that typically happen. Three of them are very bad. And one of them is very good. I want to give you the three things, but I want to make sure that you understand that I'm giving you three wrong things and one right things. And so if you go home and say, these are the four options that I have to read the Bible, you have absolutely missed what I have to say, okay? You've, this is a bad day. Um, so three wrong things. One more time. Three wrong things, one right thing, all right? I'll give you the right thing, but just to make sure that we're, uh, I had someone at a previous time said, okay, so we're supposed to read the Bible like this, and it was the wrong way, and I was like, no, 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 no. Let's read the right way. All right, so number one, Number one is the application method. And for, for us to do this, um, it, let me give you the idea and we'll, we'll get to a text and so I can illustrate this. The application method is this. What happens is that this is the feels right approach that many Christians use. They look in the Bible for something that can apply directly and quickly to their situation. And if it doesn't apply directly and quickly to their situation, it, they skip over it. And so um, they begin to take and they miss out what the truth of the Bible says um, by being able to just say, what applies to me right now? And so let me, let me give you an illustration. Let's go to Philippians 4 um, verses 10 through 13. It says this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly now at length. You have revived your concern for me. You, you, uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Now that I am, uh, now that I'm speaking of being in need, uh, sorry, not that I've, I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. All right, so this is a great passage, right? A terrific passage. But if you're to take and you're to say, okay, um, 
This is, uh, this is someone who thinks about getting into the text and the application understanding of this and uses the application method. They would read this text and here's what they would look. They would begin to say, um, okay, um, I, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. Now at length, you've revived your concern for more me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And, and so here's what they would be doing. They would begin to say, okay, what part of this applies to me? And then maybe they look at this and they begin to say, you know what? I've had some friends that were kind of jerks lately. Maybe they're really just, they haven't really had an opportunity to really, to really provide for me. Maybe, maybe it is that I've simply overlooked um, and, and, and at some point they're going, to, they're going to have an opportunity. So maybe I should just wait and, and, and I should just wait because I feel kind of alone right now and I feel like my friends are kind of deserting me. And so, man, I read this text and, uh, and here's, what, here's what Paul seems to be going through and I really connect with that. So you're indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. And so I'm just going to claim that and um, I'm just going to believe the best in my friends um, because maybe they had no opportunity to meet my needs as well. That's not what the text says. I, I, hope, I hope you get that. Well, like once we say that out loud, but that's how we often read the text. We go into that and say, okay, now I, I'm kind of taking and um, I'm looking for something that can apply to me. And I'm looking and I'm being able to look at the text and being able to say, okay, what does it look like if this begins to apply to my situation? That's called the application method. Okay. We simply look for something that actually tries to apply directly to our lives. The o- only idea is, is it's, if I was to name this something else, I would call it the chicken soup for the soul method. And so we're basically looking at something like, hey, how can I get something from this that makes me feel good about my certain situation right now? And oftentimes this is driven out of an emotional need um, for us to be able to do this. That's the application method. Number two, also wrong, just for clarity, <laughs> the personalization method. The personalization method. Um, and so, uh, so the personalization method is this. It, it, it's the personalizing or allegorizing of, uh, uh, of an approach to understanding scripture. In this approach, there's no sensitivity to the cultural culture, history, the background, or the original meaning of the text at all. It is in, uh, we, we instead just say, what, what does this mean to me? And how is it, how do I spiritualize this to fit into my context? And so if you are going to take the personalization method, um, you might be able to get down into this, this last part and you might be able to say, uh, so I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through, through him who strengthens me. Um, so here's, you know what I, I began to recognize? I began to realize, man, I have this test coming up. And uh, man, I read that verse and all of a sudden, man, I'm gonna go in, I'm gonna nail that test, right? I'm gonna own that moment because why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? And we begin to say, yes, I'm going in. Like, I haven't studied at all. I haven't, I haven't done anything to prepare, but man, I'm going to own this. Why? Because Christ is in me and I can do all things. <clears throat> so I'm going to goof off, right? So this is the personalization method, right? Or, or we begin to say, you know, Paul talks about being in chains and we, we sit around and we say, what are your chains? Like, do you, what are your chains? Or we begin to think, we read David and Goliath and say, what is your Goliath? Who is your giant? This is the personalization method. You don't have a giant, likely, that's causing you physical harm, right? Okay, this is unlikely to be the case for you. 
If you do, please tell somebody. Um, if there's a giant that is after you that's nine foot tall. Um, this is this personalization method, right? This, you, when you read this, like, this is what we get. Like, and this is also what we get. Um, here's Tim Tebow with that on his... Uh, with that on his, his little eye black. Um, and, and so I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, right? Except he's gonna get sacked, right? And this is gonna be a really awkward moment. It's like, you didn't do that thing, Tim. You know, um, so it's a weird moment for us to be able to claim these verses, right? And for us to be able to say, uh, this is what this looks like. And this is how we begin to uh, take and misuse the text. So we, we take and we use the, the, uh, the application method. We use the personalization method and we begin to take and we use this. The other thing that happens is we use the literalist method. Again, not the correct way to read the, read the Bible, just for clarity. So this is, uh, so you read this and, uh, and it says this, uh, now, not that I am um, speaking of being in need for I've learned in whatever situation to be content and to know how to be brought low and know how to abound in every circumstance. I found the secret of facing pl- plenty and hunger and abundance and need. And someone's reading this and, um, and they're looking at this and, and they're, they're seeing that this group of people called the Philippians went and somehow got into um, Paul's context. And, and he says this, I rejoice greatly at now that you have revived your concern for me. And they begin to take, okay, so here's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to take and we're supposed to meet the needs of people in prisons. Or we're supposed to meet the needs of people in other towns. Like, because this is what, this is what the command is, is saying, that this is what Paul is celebrating. And so we begin to see uh, literalists and they begin to take and they literally say, this is what this means. Um, and, and they begin to take and say, or, or they'll do it the opposite way and say, there's no verse on this thing, right? There's, there's no verse that says you can't do this or you can't do that. That is a literalist um, viewpoint of the Bible. So instead of being able to take the, the whole idea, what they're looking at is for a literal verse to be able to say that they could not do this, right? And so, um, and so it's like, should I steal a car? Well, let's find a verse. Like, there's no verses about stealing cars in the Bible, right? I promise you, don't even look for them. Um, they're not there because there's no cars, right? So, but a literalist would be able to say, okay, so I'm having this issue with my girlfriend or my boyfriend, you know, like, and, and I need to find a, like, and so what we begin to do is we begin to look and we begin to try to find this really specific literalist kind of thing. Also, not the way to do it. So let me give you, this is the way. So those are the three ways not to. Let me tell you the way to read the Bible. And this is called the principalist method. I may have made up this word, I'm not really sure, but the principalist method takes, and what it does is it helps us look for the theological principles in the Bible. It helps us to understand what's going on um, that is a timeless truth. As we begin to see this, what is the big idea that is for everyone always? That is the thing that we begin to look in this and we begin to understand. So when we get into the text and when Paul is writing to the Philippian church and he's talking about this idea, he's rejoicing and he's coming to this place and he's experienced, like there's a lot of hardship in his life and he's looking at this and he said, whatever situation I'm in, I've learned the secret to be content. And then he goes on and he says, in good times and bad times, and he says this, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So what he's talking about is this, the the principle here, the always and forever thing is that Jesus is your anchor. 
And that whatever happens, it is Jesus who ultimately provides the source of joy in your life. Your circumstances can't do that. So when you begin to think about this, this is the timeless truth. You can begin to anchor that into any context, into any place. This is not applied just to you. This is the timeless truth that happens everywhere. And so what we have to do is we have to get into the text. We have to ask, what is the timeless truth? What is this principle that is behind this. And when you discover the principle, what happens is when you begin to say, this is the always and forever thing, you begin to cult proof yourself. (laughs) You begin to get into this place where you can get, and, and this is what we want. We want to empower you to read the text and for you to be able to understand that when you look for the timeless truth, when you look for the theological principle, what happens is that you submit to the text but also everyone else has to submit to that text. So you're not manipulated. So you can begin to say, this is a trustworthy thing. I can begin to say, uh, so let's just take this idea. I can just say, man, there, there might be some worry. There might be some anxiety. There might be some things, uh, but, but this guy's in chains and this guy is facing death. And what he's doing is he's looking death in the eye and beginning to say, you know what? I, all over my life, I've, I've had all these experiences and it's actually finding contentment in Jesus that is the one consistent anchor that changes anything else. And you can take that today. You can put that in your pocket. And you can use that and you can begin to say, man, if something, if someone else is telling me that some, some other thing is ultimately going to bring me that, so financial security or being able to have the right social group or being able to have um, this being known or, uh, or any kind of notoriety, this is what will actually bring you joy. You know, they're manipulating you. This is what the text says. This is the timeless truth. All right, so how do you begin to go about actually discovering that in the text? Let me, let me give you four ideas that help you to begin to discover the timeless truth in the text. No, number one, find out what the passage meant to the original biblical audience. Now, none of us are first century or Old Testament scholars, but you can get into this and you can read and you can begin to say, okay, what's going on here? What, what, what's the context of what's happening? And if you don't know that, there's things that you can get online and you can begin to say, what's the context? What's the background of this book? And you begin to know a little bit about what might be happening in there. And so you begin to say, okay, what would this meant, what would this meant for the original audience? So it can't mean for us what it never meant to them. That's a, that's a truth, right? So what we have to understand is what was the original idea and, and how is this given to this group of people, all right? Number two, find the differences between the biblical audience and us today. So are there some things that are different from the here and now, right? So in this, what we begin to see is that there might be a difference in the fact that we don't get jailed in this time, in, at least in, in our country, for the proclamation of Jesus and for the proclamation of the gospel, right? So this is something that's different. Um, this is something that, that would be kind of a contextual thing that we would be able to say, okay, let's look at this. This, this might be a different thing. Um, and so what are the differences between us and they? Then what are the time, what's the timeless truth of the passage? As you begin to get into that and you begin to say, okay, what did it mean to the original audience? What's the difference between their lives and my lives so that I begin to understand, hey, what's applicable to me? And, and, and maybe what's applicable to me is not what ultimately was applicable to them. 
And that's completely fair for you to begin to say, what's the bigger idea that's going on here? Paul might be telling a group of people. And in fact, if you go on in, in, in Philippians, he's beginning to call out people by name and he's telling them to stop fighting. Is that applicable to you? No, because you're not one of those people, right? But when you begin to discover the bigger idea, the, the unity in the body is the idea. But, but you're not getting called out by Paul for fighting in our church. Number four, how should Christians apply this truth today? So how should you begin to apply this truth today? What's the timeless truth? And then what do you begin to do about this? What, what is it that you begin to operate out of? How do you begin to apply this truth today? What's the application? And so the big idea is this, that there's one meaning, but many applications. And so if you begin to think about this idea that um, in Jesus is your anchor that provides contentment. We could go around this entire room. We could go around and, and begin to say, hey, this is the place where this applies to me. This is the place where I'm struggling to be content. I'm struggling to be content in this area of my life. I'm struggling to be content in this, this place. And so that application might be completely different to you, but the timeless truth still applies. It might be a different thing in your life than it is in my life. But the, the idea still begins to say, you know what? To be able to operate in a way of faithfulness to God, what I begin to see is that I should walk towards Jesus and give him my fears and give him my doubts and give him my insecurities and that's how I should be able to, to, to ultimately do something about this, that I don't wallow in my worry and, and I don't wallow in anxiety. I give those to Jesus, right? So that's that thing that we can all begin to, to submit to and begin to say, hey, if I have this, if I have contentment issues, then I begin to submit that to who God is. So that's just this idea, one meaning, many applications. And the struggle is that oftentimes what happens is that, is that we don't like the meaning or that meaning isn't culturally helpful or, or it's not culturally sensitive sometimes or, like, or, or, or really this is one of those things that just kind of goes against what we want and maybe it's not a popular idea. And so what happens is we take and we manipulate the meaning to be what we want to apply so instead of being able to start with the meaning and apply it to our life, we start with the application and then we try to read back into the meaning. And that's called heresy. And that's what happens when we begin to see people manipulate the Bible. They say, this is the outcome that I want to happen. And so therefore, I'm gonna try to take and make the Bible change to fit what I already have decided on. And that's not submission to the Bible. That's ultimately us being in control. And here's one of the things that... Um, that our church, we've tried to, over the last 12 years, to be as faithful to this as we know how. And we mess up and we're fallible. Um, but, but here's some convictions that we have that we're never gonna let, um, these are, this is, we're not going to let personal bias change what the scripture says. That this is what I want our church and this is what I want us to be about, that we're not going to let personal bias 
change what the scripture says. So that when we get into this and we have this moment where we're like, I'm not sure if I love what the Bible says about the exclusivity of Christ, or I don't know if I love about what the Bible says that about really the core motivations that we have being evil and not good. Maybe that feels like it rubs me the wrong way. Maybe I don't like what the Bible says about gender. I don't like what the Bible says about marriage, right? And so we have all these things that we begin to say, are we going to allow ourselves to trust the Bible? Are we going to try to manipulate the Bible? Are we going to, uh, we'll never alter the truth of scripture to succumb to the popular belief of culture. In every single situation, or sorry, in every single um, cultural context throughout the last 2,000 years, there has been a tension that we've had to hold when the Bible confronts cultural values and the temptation is always for the people that proclaim the gospel and the people that read the Bible to take and change the, un, the, the unchanging word of God to be able to change this to fit into the culture, to be able to try to make it morph into something that's popular, to make it morph into something that is acceptable. And, and here's what happens. In that moment, what, what we begin to see is that culture is the king and ultimately the Bible has to submit to the culture, not this idea that God has created a truth of the world to be able to give to us in the Bible and that changes society and that changes our culture and that we have something that we can proclaim to, to, uh, to, the, to the culture that allows them to be able to understand that there is hope in the midst of difficult situations. But if we begin to take the Bible and we begin to say, let's let the Bible, let's, let's reinterpret the Bible. Let's, let's, the Bible doesn't seem to be modern in its idea of these things that are happening. And so let's take and let's change it. And this is when we begin to do this, it's the same thing that happens and the same thing that happened 200 years ago when the Christian church in America began to say, you know what? Economics tells us that we should have slaves. And so we begin to look at the Bible and we begin to manipulate the text and we begin to say, you know what? It's okay for one person to own another person and we can have biblical justification. And we look back at that and say, that is absurd. How did you get there? And yet we cannot do the same thing as we begin to get into the text and we begin to get into the word and begin to say, we're not gonna do the same thing with just a different issue. The last thing is this is that we're not going to apologize when the text confronts our idols. And this is hard sometimes. We, we don't want to pull punches and we want to be able to say, this is what God says. And sometimes it's not very popular. And sometimes we get a lot of flack. And sometimes it's one of those things that, um, that, that, that really is, is, is uncomfortable for us. But we don't want to apologize when the things that keep us from God when the Bible, like a, like a surgeon's scalpel, begins to, to get into that place and needs to cut out the sickness within us, that we would keep that from happening because of the initial pain of the scalpel, right? We don't want to apologize for those things. So here's what we, we get. We get to this place where we begin to look at the text and we begin to say, is it trustworthy? Is it something that I can begin to submit my life to? I want you to understand in every moment, every time that when, when people have followed the scripture, being able to say, will you rightly handle the word of God? That you would correctly handle what happens is flourishing of humankind. 
And we can look back that when people take the scriptures and begin to submit themselves to the scriptures and not use the scriptures to manipulate other people, what happens is we begin to see human flourishing. This, two weeks ago, I got to be in, in John Newton's church. And if you don't know who John Newton is, maybe you know what ultimately his, his famous contribution to Christianity is. It's the hymn, Amazing Grace. And John Newton was a slave trader. And John Newton was a guy who was known for his, uh, his orchestrating of slaves um, from Africa, ultimately all over the British Empire. And he met the God of the Bible. And when he met the God of the Bible, he had a radical conversion. And he went from slave trader to pastor. And he pastored a church in London. And a couple of weeks ago, I got to go into his church and, um, and see where he, he preached and to see where he, he taught. And that was incredible. And, and as a group, we began to sing Amazing Grace in John Newton's church. And I'm telling you, that's a powerful moment to be able to think about that line. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. From a guy who was a slave trader recognized that grace and gave his life to being able to help people to see that, that grace of God. The guy who was giving our tour said, there's more to this. And he pointed over to a little door on the side of this church. He said, that leads to the rector's room, the, the kind of this, this little room off the side of this, this chapel, this, this church. He said, it was in that room that one day, um, William Wilberforce walked in and asked some significant questions about faith in the Bible to John Newton because he's been, he was exploring the Bible and he just needed to understand, is this, is this true? And so John Newton takes him and they begin to discuss this, this and William Wilberforce was in parliament um, and, and he was having this difficulty being able to understand what do I do now that, now that I, I have this position? What do, what do I do as I begin to interact with this God of the Bible? And he had this moment where everything began to be very clear. As he recognized this, he began to set his mind to ultimately abolishing slavery throughout the British Empire. And he worked the rest of his life. And there's a group of people called the Clapham sect. And they were throughout um, this, this area of, of London. And what they did is they looked at the text and began to apply this to the world around them. And they began to say, hey, it seems like the God who created everyone created everyone equally. And ultimately we look around at the British empire and we want to eliminate slavery. And so William Wilberforce and the Clapham sect, they begin to work. And ultimately it took the rest of his life and three days before he died, he heard the news that the vote had finally passed to eliminate slavery. This is what happens when the Bible is handled correctly. It begins to move to places of ultimate flourishing of humankind. Last week I was in Rome and, uh, and I was, I was, as I was in Rome, I got to see some significant places. But one of the places that I got to see was, uh, was where Paul wrote um, the text that we're reading out today. And the likely place that he was at in terms of being able to be in house arrest. Now there's a church on it and it's, and it's celebrated now, but, but this is this place. And here's what he wrote. 
right before he gets to this idea of handling scripture correctly, right? He says, remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, descended from David. This is my gospel for which I'm suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal. And then later, it's just a short walk, about a five minute walk. I got to go to the place where they've discovered that Paul actually spent time in jail. And this is the picture of the, uh, of the Roman prison. There's only one that they understand at that time in the first century. And this is the picture of what it would have looked like and the conditions that when he begins to talk about being chained as a criminal and being in prison and bearing that, this is the context that he's at. And the fascinating thing is this, this place was just a stone's throw away from the Roman Forum. This is where all the power was. He could see the palaces of the men who were of absolute power, these emperors of the Roman Empire whose word went thousands and thousands of miles and whose power was immense. And in that, as we begin to see this context and he's, he's in this place and he is powerless, this is what he writes to Timothy. He says this, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Now I'm there standing in that moment, standing in that dank, prison where they've excavated all of this and they've found all of these, uh, the, this reality and they've built a church on top of it and it's kind of weird. But in this, I want you to get 2,000 years ago, as Paul is writing this, I'm in chains, I'm bound up. But Timothy, I want you to know something. The word of God will not be chained think about he's writing that he's in prison he's chained he's a Roman citizen but he has no rights at this point and just about a kilometer away he's going to eventually be beheaded and buried but he writes to Timothy this promise the word of God will not be chained how audacious is that that you look around and it's the height of the Roman empire, the height of the power of the civilization. And you begin to say, how could you begin to say the word of God is not gonna be chained? And yet today, if I was to ask you, who is the emperor that ultimately gave the decree to kill Paul? It's unlikely that you would be able to remember his name. And today, in this moment, we're reading the scriptures that Paul said would never be chained. It's been 1,500 years since Rome has been a power in the world. But over the last 2,000 years, the word of God has begun to affect a massive amount of the globe. So I want you to get this that the word rightly given to us creates places of flourishing and that you can trust and submit your life to this because we begin to have something that we all submit and we read this and we begin to say there's timeless truths 
But more than that, you begin to see the power of the word um, begin to overcome massive empires. And you begin to see that a man written, uh, writing these words in chains. If he showed up today, what an amazing moment, right? To be able to say, it looked so bleak, but the word of God will never ultimately be thwarted. So here's what we get to see is this, is that every day, you and I, this God that we, we get to meet with God, this God who orchestrated the events that led a chained man to write about the gospel and write about the word of God. This same God who orchestrated this throughout history is the same God that is on every single page of your Bible. The same God and the same truth that you can come face to face in and the same God that you can confidently and consistently submit your life to and have trust that the Bible is the very truth of God. So may we be people that don't just see the Bible as something that is old and antiquated and distant, but we begin to see it as the gift of God that we begin to, to go to and we begin to say, this, this can change my life. So resonate, will you allow the very words of God to change your life? This is what I'm praying for all of us. Let me pray for us. God, in this moment, will you just show us how small we are in your history? God, I ask that you would take and you would help us to understand what we have and how we can rely on it. Help us today, God, to understand how your words are more than words, but it's the very truth that we live our lives by. God, we ask all this in your holy name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting resonate.net.